Today's shir is dedicated. The schut of the shir should be for the refuah shlema of Dvora Idel Bat Miriam Bracha. Schut Torah, schut hafatzat Torah, tamod la refuah shlema, refuah nefesh, refuah aguf, hashda ba'adala b'zman kariv. KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzet Torah. You're listening to the Erev Shabbat program on Yudzet Hevet, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parashat Shemot, and I am your host, Jonathan Snowbell. <coughs> Parashat Shemot makes us think about um, many different issues. Uh, makes us t- think of procreating. We have uh, B'nai Israel as described as Increasing abundantly and multiplying. Times when it's not so easy to procreate in the sense of Yocheved and her husband Amram who decide that despite Paro's decree to throw sons into the ore, they're going to have a baby. And in fact, they have a boy. And they go ahead with it, nonetheless, and they do the, what they can do for the best for the child, and in fact, risking this child's life, ultimately they bring the person who is going to be God's messenger in taking B'nai Yisra out of Mitzrayim. Parshat Shema makes us think about Galut and Geula. And it makes us question, what is the purpose of Galut? And what is the purpose of Geula? What is the purpose of Galut in the sense that sometimes in Tanakh we have a Galut like Galut Bavel, where we have B'nai Israel sinning for an abundance of years over different over the spans of different kings' lives, different kings leading the the people to sinning. And we have a consistent pattern of sin that the Navi Yirmiyahu, and before him Yeshayahu, and other Navim as well, are chastising the people that they're sinning, and they're going to bring bring about their own destruction. And ultimately the destruction comes, and, and the Galut is a punishment, and everything makes sense. And then we have a Galut like Galut Mitzrayim, where different commentators and different Midrashim try to stake a claim as to why this galut was given to Am Yisrael, whether it was Avraham questioning God's promise on the land in Parsha Lechacha, Bama'ida Ki Roshana, because I'll say, because you question God, that brought about the Galut. And there are those who want to claim that it's connected to different actions or misdeeds of the Avot, or perhaps Ben Israel after they came to. Uh, Mitzrayim, that they became too comfortable in Mitzrayim, and therefore 
the the what was initially a exile by choice became slavery. But on a, on a, on a simple level, one could claim the the sin of selling their brother Yosef or attempting to sell or wanting to sell their brother into slavery, depending on what which opinion we accept as to whether the brother sold Joseph or not. But this terrible act leads to um, the Galut in Mitzrayim. Of course, we have to all remember that the Galut in Mitzrayim is already decreed in the time of Avraham. You should know that your seed is going to be in a land that is not theirs and they're going to be enslaved and they're going to be afflicted. So, anything that's post-Avraham perhaps could be an additional reason for, for this galut and the slavery. But Avraham is, pro- is promised this by God. And though, as I, as I mentioned, there are those who want to explain that the sin was Avraham saying, How will I know that I will inherit the land? However, there's nothing explicit. It's not as explicit as what we read about in Tanakh, about Galut Bavel, about Galut Ashur. B'nai Israel sin, and they go into Galut. And a, and a sentence of Bamaidaki Rashana does not seem to justify a slavery for whether it's 210 years or 400 years, 210 years is the more accepted view. Not even slavery for 210 years, but less than that. But being in Egypt for at least 210 years. And and a slavery for whatever it is, 150 years, 100 years, doesn't seem to help us understand if it indeed is a punishment for Avram saying, Why did so many people have to be slaves for so long? Why did children, babies have to be thrown into the or? So in that sense, what we're describing are two types of galut. A galut where we seem to understand the galut as a clear punishment for the nation, because the nation sinned. And a galut which seems to be, if if I may say, more arbitrary. When When we have things that are more arbitrary, we have to ask ourselves... What is the reason? This is one of the most troubling questions that a believing Jew faces. And it's not limited to Galut Mitzrayim. And it moves along to suffering throughout the generations of Jews who were close to God. And it, of course, peaks in our theological questions regarding the Holocaust why things there happen. And trying to give answers to the question of why it happened often are fruitless and futile. But trying to give ways of dealing with it often are the correct ways is are often the correct ways of dealing with questions of this sort. And of course the person who formulated this way of dealing with things 
in the in the clearest way is Rav Soloveitchik, who formulated that with regard to suffering, it's not a question of why something happened, but what we should do as a result of the situation that we are in. We can examine ourselves, and not because we're expecting to find, when we examine ourselves, a sin that is the cause for the suffering, though that's a possibility, but because suffering is supposed to cause us to look around, change things. In other words, suffering might be a punishment, but whether it is or not, and whether we know the reason for the suffering or not, and in most cases we do not, because in most cases we don't have an avi telling us what is going on, we do know that we have to respond and we have to act. And perhaps looking at the Galut and Mitzrayim, and if we accept the assumption that we're making here, that we don't have a good explanation in the Psukim that this Galut is a punishment. But at the same time, we have a very clear idea that God is guiding this Galut. Because we are told, even in Abraham's lifetime, that this Galut is coming. So we have a confidence that somehow there can be inexplicable, inexplicable, pardon me, inexplicable suffering that is guided by God's hands. Now the guiding by God's, God's hands is a double-edged sword. Because one can walk away and say, how could God cause suffering that's, that there's no explanation for? On the other hand, one can be comforted by the fact that if God is causing the suffering, there's a method to the madness, and there's a reason for the suffering. Whether it's a punishment or not, this needs to happen, and God is guiding it. And in that sense, perhaps, you'd see at Galut Mitraim, the slavery in Egypt can give a strength for dealing with suffering today, or, or analyzing suffering today, whether past suffering, present suffering, or the suffering of the nation, or the suffering of the individual, that there is a suffering that God may guide that we don't understand why. And the question is, how do we react? And what do we do as a response? Galut Mitzrayim is limited in time. Whether the... We have have problems with the years with Galut Mitzrayim. 400 years were told to Avraham. We seem to see in practice that they were in Mitzrayim for 210 years from the time that Yaakov and his sons arrived in Mitzrayim until they left. And then, of course, there's a pasuk in Sefer Shemot and Parshat Bashalach, which talks about 430 years. So we're not getting into the exegetical questions right now. However, the fact that 
there was a set time for Galud Mitzrayim, seems to create a situation that the Gula comes in any case. Whether we merit such a Gula or not necessarily, the Gula will come and it will be ended. And then the question is, how much was the Gula a function of the deservingness of the nation? When there is a set time set for the Galut, that means that regardless regardless of whether the nation is ready for redemption, they're going to be redeemed. Regardless of whether the nation has raised their level to a better level, they're going to be redeemed. And whatever was accomplished was accomplished. This is not so, of course, with our present Galut, where no time was set. <coughs> Galut Mitzrayim, a time was set. Galut Bavel, a time was set, 70 years. In our Galut, no time was set. And in this, we have an interesting point to make about the difference between the Gulat Mitzrayim and the Gulat Tida. The Gulat Mitzrayim is described in different places as Bechipazon. It was in haste. A hasty Gula. And Chazal talk about that Am Yisrael had to come out of Galut right there and then. Had they stayed in Galut any longer, they would have sunken into the 50th gate of Tumah, gate of impurity, and they would never have been able to come out. And that exactly is the point that we said previously. That B'nai Yisrael will come out of Galut no matter what. They don't necessarily have any merit that demands that they should come out of Galut. They haven't necessarily been Chuzayi Chuvat. So Chazal say that they did a brit milah, a mass brit milah, and, and the Torah teaches us about the korban Pesach. But ultimately, Chazal say at Kriyat Yamsuf, halalu of the Avodah halalu of the Avodah Am Yisrael are of the Avodah and Mitzrayim are of the Avodah Why is God preferring Am Yisrael? And the answer is not in the merit of Am Yisrael in Gilulat Mitzrayim, but in the merit of our forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov. And therefore, since it's in their merit, and therefore, since it did not depend on the actions of Am Yisrael, it could have a fixed time. But the Gulat is described in Yeshayahu in contrast to the Chipazon of Gulat Mitzrayim as You will not come out hastily. The Gulat is not set in years. We do not know when it will happen. And that is because it depends on us. In Am Yisrael Nigalim Ela Am Yisrael only merits Gula because of Tshuva. And that's something that takes time. And that's a process. And that can't happen and it can't happen at a set time. 
It has to happen when it happens. Galut and Geula and Parashat Shemot. At this time, we would like to give our attention to Rav Tavori. This week on Yutas Teves is the yard site of Rabbi Victor Zipperstein, who was known as a Rosh Hashiva in Yeshiva University for many years. Rabbi Victor was born in Pinsk in 1906, and he went to the various yeshivas of Europe. He learned in Slabotka. From Slabotka, he wound up in the Mir. He was one of the founding students of the yeshiva of Hebron. He was married to the granddaughter of one of the leaders of Mizrahi, of religious Zionism, Rav Reines. The Rav of Lida was his father-in-law, and eventually Rav Tzipperstein himself took over that position. When the European destruction was taking place, he escaped together with many other students of the various yeshivas, specifically from Mir, and wound up for a while in Shanghai. I was told by some of the people that learned in Shanghai that the Hasmada in that yeshiva was almost incomparable to anything that they've ever seen before. Partly because of the responsibility for continuing the world of Torah, and partly because simply there was no outside influence on them, they learned with tremendous Hasmada. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz at that time was in Shanghai and learned Bechavrusa with Rav Tziperstein. The only time I actually met Rav Chaim Shmulevitz personally was at the house of Rav Tziperstein in Yerushalayim when Rav Chaim Shmulevitz came to visit him. After he came to America, Rav Tziperstein became a Rosh Hashiva in Yeshiva University. He actually started the first kolel of Yeshiva University, but approximately in 1956, he went to become the chief rabbi in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. And he changed a lot, improved a lot, the situation of the Orthodox Jewry of Buenos Aires in Argentina. But eventually, he came back to Yeshiva University and came back to being a Ram, a Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva University. He was very well loved by his students. And one of the indications of that love was seen last year when his son-in-law, Rav Noam Gordon, and Naomi, the daughter of Rav Zipperstein, decided to have an evening in their home dedicated to the memory of Rav Zipperstein. Now this is a man who had passed away in 1976 on Yutas Teves. He passed away. Thirty years later, how many students would bother coming to an evening and talk about their Rebbe, Rebbe Vigdor Zipperstein? I went there and was surprised 
by the amount of students that were there and by the stories that each one told to show his personal relationship with Rebbe Vigdor and in a way expressed his love and appreciation for the Tamit Chacham that he was. Not only for the Tamit Chacham that he was, but for the person he was. At the Hespid of Reb Zipperstein, Reb Chaim Shmulevit said that he knew of no one who had greater Avas Eretz Yisrael than Reb Zipperstein. This was shown in one time to me. Well, firstly, he went on Aliyah. He waited for years, but he did come on Aliyah. And for, during his lifetime, he was a member of Mizrahi and a member of the Presidium of Mizrahi, in fact. But personally, I'll always remember the time that when I was doing my first army service, on my first time home from the base, I took a bus from Bet El and I got off on Rukhov King George. For the first time, I came to a city wearing Madim, wearing an army uniform, carrying a gun. And to me, it was a very special occasion. I'm walking around in an army uniform. The first person that I met when I walked off the bus, when I got off the bus, was Rabbi Vigdor. And this man, who was a venerable Rosh Hashiva, with a long coat, big hat, as was the custom of the Rashi Yeshiva, of the Rabbanim, stopped at attention on the street and saluted me. And you could see the happiness that he felt to see a chayal, a soldier. And he turned to me and said, Binyamin, you just asked the cash on the Gemara. The Gemara says, Isafra losaifa, Isafra losafra. The Gemara says there's only a choice. Either you're a man of the book or you're a man of the sword. But they do not coexist. You cannot have a person who's both a soldier and a man of the book. And he turned to me and said, Binyamin, you're a Tamit Chacham. How can it be that you're a soldier as well? I answered that Kasha quite easily. It was very polite and very respectful of Rav Tziprestein to ask that question. And it was appropriate for his personality. But I answered that in the army, they don't think I'm much of a cipher. They don't think that I'm much of a soldier. But in the yeshiva world, in the godless of Rav Tziprestein, he knew that I wasn't such a Tamit Chacham. So therefore, the kasha really didn't exist. But Rav Tziprestein wanted to show the concept of a person who learns Torah is con connected to the world of Torah, being a soldier, is something that's unique in the 20th century. Other students at that time mentioned many, many stories and many of the particular qualities of Rav Tziprestein. Among them was that he understood his students. Although his background was much different, he came from a world of, in Europe, from a world where he was steeped in, that, in the world of the Saba of Slabotka, in the 
Mashgiach of Mir, and he came to meet American students who were busy with other things involved in secular pursuits. He made a big effort to understand them and in fact to help them on their chosen paths. A man who was completely aware of the world used to read the newspaper every day, used to come into yeshiva to discuss sometimes current events with the students, to discuss world events with his Talmidim. But he also encouraged his students to continue their education in whatever field they were doing. He tried to make sure that they could continue learning at the same time and very often would make special efforts to arrange for them to continue learning even as they were studying their secular subjects. His lambdas is unquestioned. A Rosh Hashiva of many, many years, a person who was Marbit Torah for many years, one of the comments that I always remember from him is whenever you would speak to him about something, whatever topic you brought up, one year he was learning Bavakama, and I, in the afternoon, was learning Avodah And I used to talk to him about what I was learning in Avodah And apparently, in the yeshivas, they don't learn Avodah that much. It was not something that's on the curriculum of most yeshivas. So, the Rosh Yeshivas were not as familiar with that Masechta as they were with many other Masechtas, like Bavakame or Gitin or Bavabastra. It's one of the Masechtas that's not learned in Yeshiva. But whenever I spoke to Rav Tziprestein, he used to look at me with a big smile and say, as klingt mir in kop, it seems that something's like ringing in my head. And he always had an answer. He always used to point to something and say, this is what he remembered from who knows when. I remember one time when I asked him a question and he looked at me with that big smile and he said to me, it rings a bell that Rabbeinu Tam said and he told me what Rabbeinu Tam said. Then he quickly took a Gemara, opened it up, pointed to the Tosfus and looked at me with a sad look in his face and said, you see what happens? When you don't review often enough, you begin to forget. I haven't really learned this Masechta since it's not learned in Yeshivas. I haven't learned it Be'iyun. I haven't learned it in depth for many years. And therefore, my memory failed me. I thought Rabbi Tam said it, and I was wrong. It was the Re that said it. The happiness of knowing the Bikiyas, the lumdas that he had, was there. But nevertheless, that tinge of, of regret that he spent his time learning the Yeshiva Masechtas and would have liked to review other Masechtas and grown in other areas as well. Rav Tziprestein has left a very little of his lumdas in print. There is one Sefer that was printed by his son-in-law, by his Talmidim. It's called Imre Avigdar. And it, there are, in it there are pieces of Shiurim that he gave over the years. Unfortunately, the Drushos 
that he gave do not seem to be in print at all. He was a darshan, besides being a Rosh Hashiva, of remarkable ability, in an old style, especially when he spoke Yiddish or Hebrew, his style was that of the famous darshanim. And in Yeshiva University, he actually used to give a hashkafa shir, a sicha, in the world of machshava, which was attended by many of the best talmidim and only feel regret that we don't have those sichot available to us in print. His legacy is not as much in the shiurim that are printed, but in the living memory of his Talmidim, who talked about him that night in Yerushalayim. One of the things that he instituted is very interesting to see how it continued. At a certain stage in his life, Rav Zipperstein moved from the Bronx, where he was closer to Yeshiva University, to Kew Garden Hills, where he was a member of the shul near his house, the young Israel of Kew Garden Hills. In that shul, he began a Minchas Chinuch Shir. And every week, many of the students who were once Talmidim in Yeshiva and have now become business people, people in the community, used to come to that shir. And that shir lasted for a number of years. Rav Tzipristin then went on Aliyah, and I was not aware that that shir had continued even after Rav Tzipristin came to Eretz Yisrael. But at that evening that we had in Yerushalayim last year, people had said that not only did the shir continue, but the shir continues till this very day. They are still continuing with the Minchaschinuch shir that Rav Tzipristin started so many years ago. In a sense, this is the greatest kavod that you can give to a Tamit Chacham. The Gemara Mbavakame quotes and explains the phrase kavod gadol osulabamoso. They gave him a great kavod in his after his death. Melamed shoshivu yeshiva al kivro. They placed the yeshiva on his grave. The concept of continuing learning the Torah that this person taught, continuing saying over chidushim and learning the same topics that he had taught is the greatest kavod. While we bemoan the fact that we do not have more svarim of Rav Tzipristin, the shiurim and the talmidim continue his tradition till this very day. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. At the end of this Arab Shabbat program, I'd like to give everybody a nice fort to be able to say at the Shabbat table. The Pasuk in Zechariah tells us about Beit HaMikdash HaSheni, Gadol Yekvod Habayit HaAcharon Min HaRishon. The glory of the second temple, which is described as Habayit HaAcharon, will be greater than the glory of the first temple.
Now the word acharon in Hebrew is typically understood as the last. And if Zechariah is referring to the second Beit HaMikdash with the word acharon, last, it seems to imply that there are only two Beit HaMikdash and not more. However, a look into this week's parsha will show us that acharon indeed does not mean last, but rather latter. How do we see this? God gives Moshe at the Sne three signs. First, he tells him to throw his stick on the ground, which turns into a snake, and then he grabs the snake by the tail and it returns to being a stick. Then, the sign, the ot, with his hand going inside his clothing and coming out white from Tzara'at. And then there's a third one, and the third one is that God, Moshe doesn't perform here, God says you should take from the water of the ore and pour it onto the land, and it will turn into blood. <coughs> so we have three otot. The Nachash, the Tzarat, and the Dam. In, pas- in Perak Dal, Pasuk Chet, the Torah says, God says to Moshe, V'hayayim lo yaminu lach, v'lo yishmu l'kol ha'ot harishon, if they do not believe the first ot, they will believe the ot ha'acharon. And if they don't believe to these two otot, then you should take the water and pour it onto the dry land and it will turn to blood. In other words, after the second ot was described as the acharon, there's yet another ot afterwards, the third ot of the dam. So what we see here from the psukim clearly, and anybody who looks in the psukim, if they didn't catch what I explained now, will see this themselves. Acharon does not necessarily mean last, but rather it could mean latter. Of the first two otot that God had showed Moshe, he calls them the Rishon and the Acharon. There's the first one and the latter one. And then after the latter one, after the Acharon, there's even a third ot. So too we can say that the Acharon that the Charya is describing, Gedol Yekvod Habayta Acharon Min Harishon, is the latter of the two Batei Mikdash, will be, its glory will be greater than the first. But not, it is not the last, and in fact, indeed, there could be a, a Beit Mikdash after this Beit Mikdash Acharon, because Acharon is the latter of the two. So, we see from our Parsha that the, the Dam, the third sign, the third Ot, teaches us that Acharon means ladder, and therefore justifies the fact that despite Zechariah calling the second Beit Mikdash Acharon, it doesn't mean last, it means ladder. And this, they say this in the name of the Gaon Mivilna, so I'll say it, that that's what people say is hinted to in a pasuk in the parsha in two weeks, v'haya hadam le'ot al habatim. Literally, it means that the blood of the Korban Pesach will be a sign on the houses to protect them from akad bechorot. But, the idea that's said here is that the dam of this week's parsha, the third ot, teaches us about the batim that when the second bite is called the Acharon, it doesn't really mean the last, it means the latter, and there could be and there will be 
another Beit HaMikdash as well afterwards. And on that note, I'd like to wish all our listeners a Shabbat Shalom, a Shabbat that we should come closer to striving to the Geulah.